Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 245 for April 22nd, 2010. Open versus closed security. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express. Providing tech support for clients and colleagues in person is expensive and time-consuming. Support smarter, remotely, with GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, visit gotoassist.com slash security. And by Carbonite, the leader in online backup. Back up your PC or Mac off-site securely and automatically. For a free trial offer, plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com. Offer code SECURITYNOW. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything you need to know about keeping yourself safe online. And the king of security is here, Mr. Steve Gibson, the man who discovered the first spyware, coined the term spyware, wrote the first anti-spyware program. He's also the author of many useful security tools and the great Spinrite, the world's best hard drive and maintenance uh, utility. And he's here from GRC.com to talk about security. Hey, Steve. And not for the first time, for the 245th time. <laughs> I, I, I hate Never hearing those big numbers. They make me, <laughs> they make me tired. <laughs> uh, yes. I'm tiring. So uh, we're going to actually cover today something very um, interesting, a little more ph- philosophical show than usual. Yes, and I'm. Yeah, it, it, I think that's precisely it. Last week, when I was talking about the iPad, um, it generated a flurry of responses from our listeners and some confusion over in GRC's own Security Now news group with people who were sort of assuming that I meant something that I didn't mean, and it sort of. And I ended up putting together a careful posting sort of in reply to make it clear what it was that I meant, but also to be a little bit controversial, and I think defensibly so. And we've never really addressed front on the issue of open versus closed from a security standpoint. You know, we've gone around and around about what's more secure, open source or closed source, you know. And and so I want to talk about that and also about open platform versus closed platform, which is where the, the iPad and iPhone and, um, and other devices come in. So the, the, this week is the security of open versus closed. And a bunch of news. It has been a it's been a hopping week. It's such yeah, a great it's such really a great topic. Stuff. Yeah, good. Yeah. yeah, there has been. Um, it, 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 I think. Well, I can't wait to hear what you what your thoughts are on it. And I will I will uh, I'll participate in this because I, I know have, you will. This, I'm this, very this will be in this. Yeah. much more of a discussion between us. What yeah. I'm going to do is I'm going to I've rewritten that original posting a bit for the podcast, so I'll lead in. With, uh, reading what I wrote because I I can't even paraphrase it as well as what I deliberately right. put down, and then uh, we'll open it up to to talk about it. Great, uh, great. So we will get to that. We have security news, and uh, we also have um, uh, I'm sure some updates from past shows. Before we do that, though, I want to mention a company, uh, Citrix, that we know very well, and a product uh, 
that I think is so useful for people who do IT or support, go to assist. Actually, they call it go to assist express. And that's just to distinguish it from earlier go to assists you may have used. I used it. We used it on the screensavers many years ago. It is compared to that faster, lighter, more efficient with many more useful utilities. I mean, it was always a great product. Because, of course, Citrix knows remote access. But now, things like eight sessions at the same time, unattended if you choose. Uh, so you don't have to wait around for your client to uh, show up. You can you can get in there, fix the thing. You can start a scan, move to another session, start an install, move to another session. You can copy files from your computer to theirs with drag and drop. Now, that's nice. Because if you've got that reg hack, the fix, or a, a, you know, a patch, a hot fix, you just drag it right over and run it. Malware bytes, drag it right over and run it. Um, 128-bit SSL security, so it's absolutely secure. Um, you can do an assay of what operating system is running on the remote system, what security software is running, what other software is running in the background. That's really handy. Whether you're using it with family or friends or you're in the business of support, GoToAssist is a great tool, and I want you to take a look at it so much that I'm giving you a free month. GoToAssist.com slash security. Go to assist.com slash security. Somebody wrote me and said, you know, people are going to go to assist.com. I said, no, no, go to go to assist.com. <laughs> Surf to www.gotoassist.com. Get it? Get it. G-O-T-O-A-S-S-I-S-T dot com slash security for a 30-day free trial. I think you're going to find, excuse me, I think you're going to find this very useful in your business. Whether you're in IT or you support software, maybe you just, you're the family support guy. Go to assist.com slash security. We thank them for their support of security now. Shall we start with uh, the security news? I bet there's a little bit to talk about. <laughs> it was a hopping week, Leo. Um, CBS did a report which was really rather scathing. Um, you can find it on YouTube if you're curious. Um, what they revealed in an investigative journalism piece was that nearly every digital copier sold since 2002, so that's the past eight years, contains a hard disk drive, which for reasons that surpass understanding, maintains an image of every document that the machine has scanned or faxed for you. Wow. And... These machines are often leased by companies for some period of time. When the lease is up, they want the newer model. Right. So some guy comes in and wheels in the new one and wheels out the old one. The old one goes into a warehouse. And this, this CBS story showed a warehouse containing thousands of sort of wrapped in plastic sort of shrink-wrapped copiers. Um, at the time the story was being done... Two large containers, as in you know, shipping containers that goes on that go on huge, um, uh, uh, you know, transatlantic. Oh, um, those freighters! Ships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, two of those huge containers were being filled up with copiers <laughs> headed for Argentina and Singapore. Uh huh. Now the investigators purchased for I think it was maybe three or four hundred dollars each for of these used copiers and took them to a forensics guy who used freely available software, opened them up, took out the hard drives, and they found literally tens of thousands of documents. One of the copiers 
had been in a police station for the duration of its life where it had scanned police records, driver's oh, licenses, um, tax uh, tax receipts, tax records. I mean, the, the list of documents that they recovered was mind-boggling. One of the other of the four copiers had been at a health insurance company for its duration where they recovered all the documents that the scanner had seen, which for some reason were stored dutifully on this hard drive. And, uh, and they found reams of personally identifiable information, medical records, health records, social security numbers. I mean, everything you can imagine. And so here was four randomly sampled copiers out of a huge warehouse. One of the employees during this story said, oh, yeah, we're getting copiers in all the time. And then they said, well, where are those two containers going? Oh, one's off to Argentina and one's off to Singapore. They buy our used copiers. Hard drive and all. Hard drive included. Hmm. And one of the, I guess it might have been, it was someone I think it was from Canon was interviewed, one of the executives who explained that, oh, well, yeah, we tell people, you know, that uh, their documents are being stored in this thing. And for an extra $500, there's an encryption option. <laughs> but apparently, you know, not anyone, and not everyone gets that. And it's not even clear what it would do or, or how it would work. And and frankly, I'm I'm mystified by... What function it is that requires a digital copier to store documents? Well, you could see there'd be short-term storage. Maybe it's because it speeds up the scan, scans it in. Well, exactly. And then you want, like, okay, it. we need 20 copies of this. Right. So you feed it in once, it stores it on the hard drive, and then it dumps it out to its little, you know, essentially a laser printer that's built in to this thing. But, you know, have it have them expire after a day yeah. or after an hour. I mean, what's the point of storing every document you've ever scanned and and you know are they accessible through the control panel it, you know i've not seen where you're able to somehow browse through past That's documents bizarre. i mean that would be an obvious security and privacy concern so right. it's like this thing is hiding these documents for some reason and anyway so what about like kinkos if you use a public yeah uh copy place uh, presumably that's all being stored as well yeah, well, I mean, I, I can't say one way or the other which technology does or doesn't. But I mean, this seems to be a huge, un, you know, unrecognized privacy problem where you know these copiers really do need to have their hard drives scrubbed before they leave. And of course, that would kill a copier. Right. So the idea is when when your lease is up, you don't Scrub. want to. You know, you don't. Well, you, yeah. You can't kill the function of the copier. Presumably, if you did, you know, run DBAN or something oh, against the drive, yeah. it would render the copier non-functional. It probably boots off that hard drive as well. So, what's a so, digital copier? What is it? How, how would you just? I mean, how would you know if you had a digital copier? Um, what is that? Um, it's probably any any recent copier which is is, you know, running a, a scanner and is able to, you know, do fancy things like, like, like resize or, or duplex or, or, um, un, uncollate, you know, all those different things. You, you're going to, you're going to have to store the, the scanned images somewhere. 
clearly they're not storing it in RAM any longer. They're putting it on a hard drive. Wow. So, I mean, I, I would imagine that with, and you know, I mean, we, we, the, in the story, I recognized these as WD hard drives, which are, you know, well known for many years as being very inexpensive in large OEM quantities. And so I, I mean, I could see the label on the drive going, oh, that's a WD hard drive, Western Digital. And those are in copiers, apparently. That's just the way they operate now. So Very big red interesting. flag. Very interesting. Um, in other disturbing news, Slashdot picked up a story from a security researcher, Kurt, uh, I guess it's Seyfried, who uh, writes for Linux magazine. Um, he was curious in light of all of this recent flurry of of concern over the security of certificates. He was wondering how difficult it was to, to obtain certificates for web mail systems because he realized that determining the identity of the person asking for a certificate is the remaining real problem with, with the whole certificate authority process. That is... Um, you know, when I apply for a certificate for grc.com, one of the things that is done is the email is sent back to my address. And um, sometimes, you know, it's root at grc.com or hostmaster or webmaster or postmaster or or something that, that they consider to be authoritative. They want to verify that that somebody with a name like that at the domain that I'm getting a certificate for is able to receive the mail. And, and then they also will do, for example, a, uh, a telephone loop. Well, one of the problems that has arisen is over time, the whois records, the domain registrar records, are being either spoofed or, or privatized, you know, kept out of, uh, out of public eyes because people don't want people scanning the whois records in order to, to spam them. So, you know, protecting and making private your address is one of the things that many registrars offer. And some of them will simply just blank them entirely. They're just not available. So the problem is, how does a registrar ver- verify the identity of someone requesting a certificate? Well, the bad news is what has been, what has, what has come to light is that there are well-trusted certificate authorities like Rapid SSL in this instance, who, if you are able to receive email from admin at, administrator at, hostmaster at, info at, is at, it at, miss at, postmaster at, root at, SSL admin at, SSL administrator at, SSL webmaster at, sysadmin at, webmaster at, whatever domain, that's all they require as proof of your identity. So the problem is webmail hosting is, you know, is at some domain um, wherever the webmail is hosted. For example, let's say Yahoo. So unless Yahoo has already locked down all of those names, if you can get an account 
as, for example, hostmaster at yahoo.com or sslmin at hotmail.com, then that's all you need to do in order for, with Rapid SSL, a fully trusted certificate authority that all of our browsers trust. They will, and this guy did. Um, I'm trying to remember the number now. It was, it was um, um, either 11 different webmail companies, or he tried 11 in the majority. Um, he was able to obtain from them to purchase a a valid SSL web certificate, which we now understand allows anyone to perform a fully authenticated man-in-the-middle attack and or to impersonate that web server. So that's how weak this authentication, the authentication security has been. And, and the problem, of course, is, you know, in, for example, of course, in the case of GRC, I control the GRC mail system, so no one is able to get an account on my domain. But the nature of webmail, and this is what makes it particularly vulnerable to this, is that you get a, a you know account name at yahoo.com, account name at hotmail.com, or whatever, and these these are these particular account names. In the case of Rapid SSL, automatically qualify you to receive a certificate at that domain. Is that amazing? So, is this their fault? I mean, are, is it this particular uh, domain company, or well, the the, the problem is um, anybody could he, do it. Yes, he did this with, I believe, it was eleven different oh. webmail companies. Oh, okay. So this is a problem they all have, and and I mean, when you when you step back a little bit from this, it's like, okay, now what should they do? Well, the problem is there really is no. There's no one responsible here. They're they're wanting to sell certificates. Right. They're saying, well, how should we prove someone's identity? How does anyone know right. someone's actual identity on the internet? With domain name um, records now being blocked or being spoofed or being deliberately obscured, um, we can't really rely on those. So we just sort of, if you know, you give us your authentic email at that domain then if we send you email there and you're able to prove you got it then we say oh he must be the hostmaster or the administrator or the ssl admin or whatever and they're saying what what else could we do and so what this really does is it it points out just unfortunately how bad the anchors are to the whole the whole PKI, you know, public key infrastructure chain. Is it just Rapid SSL though? I mean, are other uh, no? There were CAs? 11, 11 different. Okay. Uh, um, so getting oh, rid of Rapid SSL from Firefox, for instance. Well, I mean, he's he he's proposing that <laughs> that with, with there being a certificate authority as bad as Rapid SSL. Now, the, of course, the problem is many legitimate companies have probably purchased their certs from rapid ssl right so you can't just if dump the, them exactly because then suddenly you're going to be you're not going to be able to connect to their 
to legitimate websites. But other CAs aren't doing this. Just Rapid SSL. Um, the 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 uh, it's not clear. Okay. Um, he tried it he, with Rapid SSL. He tried it with Rapid SSL and and recognized that this is a this is a problem that any certificate uh, certificate authority would have. Right. And so he was a so so he, his contention was what you need to do. I mean, what what web mail companies should do is absolutely acquire all of those account names so that so that a company like rapid ssl who is wantonly distributing certificates won't distribute any um uh for your domain that is you you control those those so, sort of those special um account names now the problem is different certificate authorities have different account names that they consider qualifying for that domain it just looks like rapid ssl has a large collection of them wow. so Man. i own you know uh, a few domains like twit should i then do something to protect myself against somebody getting administrator at twit.tv do i have to register well, i mean there, yeah, it's an infinite see, number right i mean well except that how how can some how can some random person get an email account at twit.tv oh, i mean can't. that's so right. that's why Hotmail works or whatever, because you can get a Leo at Hotmail.com and then register administrator exactly. at Hotmail.com. Exactly. Yeah. And it's why you and I are safe is I control my email system. Okay. You control yours. Okay. Now I understand. And, Got it. Right. Yeah. And so so the problem with this particular problem that affects webmail is that these special account names can be acquired on webmail systems. And that's all that a company like Rapid SSL requires in order to say, oh, you must be the domain owner. We'll give you a certificate. And, and you know, one of the things they ought to do is they ought to check to see whether the, that domain already has a certificate. All they have to do is connect to its web browser and it'll say, oh, yeah, you know, that the actual domain has a certificate from VeriSign, for example. So, you know... Why is it you're getting a certificate now from us? Oh, and that certificate's got three years left of life on it or something. So, I mean, there are, there are more proactive things that they could do. But the problem is there's no accountability. Nothing holds a certificate authority accountable for the certs that it's issuing, except if it gets a black eye like by being way permissive and people start removing that CA from their browsers because they no longer trust that CA, then people are going to be disinclined, you know, valid webmasters are going to be disinclined from purchasing certificates from them because, um, because people have removed the, um, the root CA from their browser, preventing them from getting to their, to, to their servers securely. Have you been following the McAfee story that broke this morning? No. Oh, you're going to love this one. Uh, McAfee uh, released a update to their uh, total protection antivirus. I think it's actually to the corporate version that identifies uh, service host as malware and <sighs> deletes svchost.exe. No, how can that possibly be? Then sets off a chain of uncontrolled restarts and loss of networking functionality. Twitter's going nuts about this right now. And Gadget... Oh. 
uh, has a statement from McAfee that they've pulled the update from their corporate download servers and that consumers shouldn't be uh, affected. Oh, it's, their corporate servers? It's corporate. Oh. It's dat update 5958. <laughs> Uh, here's the release from McAfee. McAfee is aware that a number of customers have incurred a false positive error due to incorrect malware alerts on Wednesday, April 21st. That's as we record this. Mm. The problem occurs with the 5958 virus definition file that was released at 2 p.m. GMT, 6 a.m. Pacific time. Our initial investigation indicates this error can result in moderate to significant performance <laughs> issues. On systems running Windows XP Service Pack 3, apparently affects Service Pack 2 as well. Uh, the faulty update has been removed from McAfee download servers for corporate users, preventing any further impact on these customers. We're not aware of significant impact on consumer customers who believe we've effectively limited such occurrence. Mm. McAfee, uh, nobody knows. The anecdotal numbers, according to Gadget, are 30,000 to 60,000 machines rebooting. As we speak, <laughs> in a loop. In well, and Leo, with, without the the service host DLL, I mean that that's a key DLL used. You can't run. I, no, I mean Windows won't run without that. You might as well just you know <laughs> reformat the hard drive. Uh, the fix, if you're listening, oh. is to boot to safe mode, rename mcshield.exe, the McAfee. Uh, shield mc shield.exe reboot run virus console pick tools and roll back the dat go back to an earlier antivirus uh, definitions update and then you can restart mc shield and reboot that's uh, i don't know so, if that works or not that's from lifehacker it's they say it's an unverified tip wow whoopsie <laughs> whoopsie yeah <laughs> whoopsie when good software goes bad well i'm not sure i'd call it good software yeah, it might be an over, overstatement. Ouch. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, uh, geez, we, uh, we talked um, several times now about the problem with PDFs being able to execute code. So I wanted to alert everyone that the, the well-known and three-year-old Zeus botnet malware is now apparently active in about, so it's been reported, as much as 88% of the Fortune 100 companies because it is infecting PDFs. When users open the infected PDF, they're prompted to save a file called Royal Mail Delivery Notice.pdf, which is actually a malicious Windows executable. The Trojan installs a sophisticated, difficult-to-detect and difficult-to-remove keystroke logger, which steals login credentials to banking, social networking, and email accounts. The command and control servers have been located, and they, but they're well-distributed, so they've found a few of them, um, and they have been found to contain tens of thousands Pieces of personally identifiable data, credit card information, social security numbers, login data to banking accounts and email account info. Um, and it's believed that several million machines worldwide are currently infected with this. So I did want to remind our users to do what Adobe is now saying to do, which is turn off this ability for PDF files to run executables. Um, it's, it is now being actively exploited in the wild as, I mean, as it was inevitably going to be. 
um, and it's catching a whole bunch of people. Yikes. Also, um, as we were recording last week's podcast, and I was I was sort of lamenting. Remember, you and I were discussing how prevalent the Java runtime was in people's machines? Yeah. Uh, as we were recording that, um, or I guess it was the day after we were recording that, um, Oracle, that of course owns Sun, was quickly putting out an emergency Java patch to deal with this zero-day vulnerability, which they had previously decided was not serious enough to warrant an out-of-cycle patch. They were going to wait until July. July? July was when this was going to get fixed. Um, But then it became clear that it was already being exploited in drive-by attacks. For example, users who visited songlyrics.com would find their computers compromised if they had the Java runtime, which would be in uh, the vulnerability in it was being invoked by scripting on the songlyrics.com website um, in order to install malware into their machines. So Java is now at, as of last week, Java 6 update 20. And uh, Oracle decided this thing would not keep for a few more months. (laughs) So really, that's, oh, that's, that's good. <laughs> good news. And then over in my my favorite acronym is TNO, and in this case, I realized that you could rearrange the letters and say TNO, not um, NOT. Uh, we have uh, Wired.com reported that's the Yoda version. No one trusts. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, the first publicized cloud computing warrant. Wired's story said a spam suspect uses Google Docs, FBI happy. That actually does sound a little bit like Yoda. <laughs> um, and I'll just read from this because they, they it, rather than paraphrasing, it says uh, or the, the beginning of the Wired.com story, FBI agents targeting alleged criminal spammers last year obtained a trove of incriminating documents from a suspect's Google Docs account in what appears to be the first publicly acknowledged search warrant benefiting from a a suspect's reliance on cloud computing. Thus, trust no one. The warrant issued August 21st of 2009 in the Western District of New York targeted Levi Beers and Chris DiDiego, the alleged operators of a firm called Pulse Marketing, which was suspected of launching a deceptive email campaign touting a diet supplement called Akai Pure. The warrant demanded the email and, quote, all Google Apps content, unquote, belonging to the men, according to a summary in court records. Google provided the files 10 days later. From Beer's account, the FBI got a spreadsheet titled Pulse Weekly Report Q3 2008 that showed the firm spammed 3,082,097 email addresses in a single five-hour spree. Oh, please. Another spreadsheet, quote, Yahoo Hotmail Gmail IDs listed 8,000 Yahoo webmail accounts the men allegedly created to push out their spam. The Yahoo accounts were established using false information, allegedly in violation of the CAN-SPAM Act. Mm. 
So, you know, here's here's you know we we've we've talked often about what it means to have your documents stored in the cloud in unfortunately a non-encrypted fashion. You know, I've I've got a bunch of stuff stored in the cloud, but I'm doing it through Jungle Disk where Jungle Disk itself performs an AES 128 or 256, I can't remember now, but it's very strong, AES uh, encryption of everything leaving my machine so that even though Amazon is storing the data, what they're storing is gibberish. They're storing, you know, pseudo-random content, which even, uh, under no compulsion possible can they reveal my, you know, anything other than pseudo-random data. So, I mean, this this is something our listeners just need to be aware of. I, I was listening to you, Leo, on one of your other podcasts, you know, talking about Google Docs and and hearing some of your um, your listeners. I oh, mean, yeah, your, we use it like crazy. I mean, this yeah. is our new way of. In fact, you know, we we tried to send you a Google Doc. Uh, yeah, and and for things like show notes and show so notes. forth, we and, keep and track. Stuff. But all of yeah. our, to be honest, all of our company stuff is on Google Docs, and so. Again, as long as that stays secure, as long as you're not concerned about the possibility that a a legal warrant could be presented forcing the disclosure of all that. I mean, you need to understand, I mean, anyone, my, my, my point is anyone doing this has to understand that that their data is not entirely under their control any longer. Their, and it's not that they only need to trust Google, they need to trust the entire the entire chain of the federal government that has the right to issue warrants to cause to to compel somebody storing this information to release it right so you know uh, it's it's worth being aware of that now unfortunately, we have a related story which is that network solutions unix based web hosting servers had been breached yet again. Mm. We haven't talked about this before, but it's a problem that has been continuing. Network Solutions had a problem just a few weeks ago and then a few months ago. In this case, hundreds of their hosted websites were hacked. Um, and, you know, they're being rather uh, closed-lipped about it at this point. I have a quote from them saying, we have received reports that Network Solutions customers are seeing malicious code added to their websites. And we are really sorry for this experience. <laughs> yeah, I bet they are. <laughs> the code, which has been injected into hundreds of Network Solutions customers' web-hosted websites, redirects any visitors to their sites to more deeply hacked servers that silently attempt to install malicious software using a variety of known vulnerabilities, such as those that exist in Adobe's PDF Reader and insecure ActiveX components. So, so here's you know sort of a, a different take on this, and that is that you know we can we can hope that Google's systems are secure. The, on the other hand, we know that just a few months ago. There was the whole much publicized infestation of of malicious activity in Google's network, allegedly from 
people in China that had been inside of Google's network and the networks of many other um, uh, major corporations for some number of months. So, uh, TNO. TNO, or N-O-T, for the Yodas among us. Um, In Arata, uh, we have uh, some clarification of of the problem that I also heard you discussing. I guess it must have been MacBreak Weekly you were doing, I think it was yesterday, talking about the problems with the iPad and networks. Um, that there Yeah, was the, DHCP lease issues. Yes, exactly. Um, there, there were news early this week that, that major East Coast college and university campuses were banning the iPad, or the iPad was causing all sorts of... Princeton did. Traffic. Yeah, and then on, George on Washington net. wants to, and another one yeah. as well. Yeah. And, um, and it turns out that... We, we now understand there's been some very good posts by um, Cornell, I think it was, that I guess due to their the nature of the oversight that they provide for their own DHCP servers, um, they were able to relatively quickly figure out what was going on, which is that the iPad ha- makes a mistake in, in not ever renewing its DHCP lease, which has expired, if the expiration occurs while the iPad is sleeping. And what I didn't realize until I read this detailed report is, you know, when you press the the power button, what looks like the power button on the iPad, you're actually just putting it to sleep. And and I should have understood that because I've noticed, for example, that it will... Um, if it's plugged in uh, to my Mac being recharged, uh, it'll bong when it receives new incoming mail. Um, and also, I made a comment also last week about how, or maybe it was the week before, how it's you know automatically connected to networks that I am at, so that such that what I really wanted was you know instant on web surfing, and it gives me that because. You know, when I turn it on, I notice that it's it's already connected. So that's not really off. It's sleeping. And so this is clearly something that Apple will fix hopefully very quickly. I'm sure they're on top of it now. But the idea is that, as our listeners probably know, when you obtain information from DHCP, Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol, over a network, it's providing you with things like the DNS servers and the IP of the machine and any of a number of different pieces of information can be obtained from the DHCP server. And the idea is that there's some expiration on that. There is a lease, as it's called. So you're you're merely leasing this information for some length of time. And what should be done is that at some point prior to the expiration of that, the the client of the server that has received this information will renew or refresh the lease, normally keeping the same information, but just sort of saying, hey, I'm still here, still using this. Um, you know, I want to keep this IP allocator to me. So this only happens when the iPad auto locks. It's As long exact- as it doesn't auto lock, no problem. Exactly. When, when, it, when, when it, it, it goes into auto lock mode, for whatever reason, it puts it in a state where if... During that time, the DHCP lease expires, then the iPad is unaware of that happening. 
if you then wake it up again with the lease having expired, it does not renew the lease. So what was happening in the case of, of Cornell University is that iPads were auto-locking that at, oh, during the time that the lease was ex, was expiring. Then the users would, would turn them back on again. Well, if that IP address, which had been assigned to that iPad, had subsequently been assigned to somebody else, then you'd have two machines with the same IP address on the same network, and we know that's never good. So you get a, you know an IP collision in that case. You know, ARP isn't happy. You've got you know di- different MAC addresses assigned to the same IP, and indeed, it will cause a problem. So what Cornell was doing was initially, if this happened twice, they would blacklist that device by its MAC address, um, which essentially kicked that that device that was misbehaving off of of the Cornell network. Um, When they later figured out exactly what was going on, they arranged to inform iPad users of several different workarounds which could be performed, one being that you would disable the auto lock so that you'd have to manually put the, 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 um, the iPad to sleep, um, which prevents this. And before doing so, they suggested you also manually turn off the Wi-Fi. And again, so students are having to jump through these hoops until Apple comes up with a fix, which I imagine will be uh, forthcoming. Any quick. minute now, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a it, legitimate complaint on Princeton's part. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This is This is very bad behavior from a client. It's doubtless some little tiny mistake, which, you know, occurred um, due to the implementation, some implementation detail, this particular state that the iPad goes into um, uh, that causes this problem. And I I do also need to explain to my listeners that when I talked about how gleeful I was that the iPad was connecting to, you know, open hotspots, I didn't mean that it would ever do that to hotspots that I had never been to before. It behaves just like Macintoshes and Windows machines do. That is, you it you tell it that you want to trust this hotspot, and so that trust is persistent, such that if you return the next day to a a hotspot that you had told it to previously trust, and you've given it permission to remember that then it will connect. Right. It's not as if it's running around, you know, <laughs> promiscuously connecting to random hotspots that you've never connected to before. And and a lot of people in the news group and also uh, in uh, who are sending emails said, wait a minute, you think that's secure? That sounds incredibly insecure. It's like, no, 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 that's, that's not what I meant at all. So it behaves in the same way that our existing laptops do in just that they're, they're remembering the hotspots that they have they have visited before. So it really isn't an oversight on Apple's. Well, it is an oversight on Apple's part, but it's kind of an understandable oversight. It's it's something they may not have thought about because they're acting like a laptop. Yeah, exactly. No, and and no, in 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 this case, it's it's behavior that you want. Right. You want to be able to say, "This is a place I go to. This is a coffee shop right. I go to." So trust its network. 
right. because you know I'm trusting it now. I would like you to remember Continue it. to do so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, so that I trust it when I'm back there tomorrow. But if you go to somewhere else, you know, it'll say no internet connection. Then you go over to, you'll go to the control panel, you open up Wi-Fi, and it'll show you a list of of available networks which may may or may not be secured and so you make your decision and then you tell it whether you want to remember that in the future just like you know the the windows or mac works right um i did have a nice story from robin weber who is a, a listener of ours he uh, he wrote to say that spinrite had saved five generations of our family <laughs> wow <laughs> he said thank you thank you thank you steve Two months ago, my wife's PC stopped booting. It would actually go into a reboot loop after the XP loading screen with an ugly sound coming from the hard drive before each reset. I tried several recovery tools on the damaged drive mounted in a good PC and never got back anything more than the sounds of mechanical gagging. Two weeks ago, I stumbled upon the Security Now podcasts and started listening to them. Then halfway through my first podcast, I heard the word Spinrite mentioned. I thought that name sounds very familiar. Could it be the same software that I used that I used to use over 10 years ago for yes. drive recovery? Anyway, I knew I didn't have a hope of recovering the drive unless I could get Windows out of the way. So I'll put down my $90 US, actually it's $89, for Spinrite and downloaded it. It was a 170K file. I thought <laughs> it had just downloaded a loader program. It was an error. Yes. Which would then get the rest of the program from the internet. But no, $89 US for a single 170K file. But getting out of my stupid Windows mentality where you need a gig free, just a, a gig of free space just to compile a program, I thought, why the hell should it be any bigger? So I ran it, and it wanted to create a boot floppy or an image which you could bur burn into a bootable CD. So what the hell? I just spent all this money. May as well give it a CD. Forty minutes later, after running Spinrite on level two, I had the entire disk back. Oh, Didn't wow, lose a single magnetic bit. Well, there were a few early sectors reported as partially recovered, so I probably lost some innocuous files. But my wife is over the moon as she's got all of her genealogy. Thank you. All of her <laughs> genealogy database, plus all of her photos, emails, etc. And the kids are happy because they have their saved games back. We've now backed up the disc, and I'll replace it shortly. I just spent $89 and got two years worth of rework done. Well worth the cost. Thanks again, Steve. Isn't that great? And Thank you, Robin, for your great report. That's so great. Well, Steve, we're going to get to the meat of the matter, open versus closed systems, and which is more secure. Uh, a great conversation. I can't wait to this. Before we do, can I mention Carbonite? Oh, by all means. Now, I, I know that uh, you know people, when they have a bad hard drive, often turn to Spinrite to save it. And I know that mentioning backup probably is bad for business, but I also know think something about you, Steve. You would far prefer people back up their data and not have to freak out like that. Yep. So you still need spin right down the road. You're going to want spin right. But if you just back it up, then you wouldn't have to get so crazy. And that's where Carbonite is such a great solution. C-A-R-B-O-N-I-T-E. Carbonite.com. It's backup done right.
because it combines a couple of features that people often forget about that I think are really important to an effective backup strategy. Number one, it should be automatic. If you have to think about it, if you have to remember it, if you have to say, oh, no, it's Sunday, i got to back up, you're not going to do it. You're going to forget. It's not going to happen often enough. It needs to be automatic. Secondly, and I, th I think this is really important. Steve and I talk about this all the time. You, It's fine to have a local backup. It's a great idea to have a local backup. But you also should have an off-site backup. Because if the worst happens, somebody breaks in and steals everything, or there's a fire, a flood, an earthquake, a tornado, whatever, and you lose the backup along with the data, you you might as well not have backed up. So Carbonite does both. It's automatic. In fact, it's, if you go right now, you could try it free for 15 days, no credit card needed. Uh, in fact, I do recommend you try it because Carbonite is also, you know, relying on your high-speed internet connection. And you've got to have a decent upstream connection to really make Carbonite worthwhile. So download it right now for free for 15 days. Carbonite.com. Use the offer code TWIT so that uh, Steve gets credit for it. Carbonite.com. Offer code. Actually, I'm sorry. We have your own offer code. Security now. So don't use the TWIT offer code. Use the security now offer code. For a long time, we didn't have one. So this way they'll know that you got it from Steve's show. Security now is the offer code. You'll get two weeks free, 15 days, no credit card needed. You'll see how it works. And then if you decide to buy two months free, which is, I think, a very generous deal, especially since it only costs $55 a year anyway, less than 5 bucks a month for everything, in, your unlimited backup of your internal drive. That's a good deal. Carbonite.com, automatic, off-site, you security uh, wizards are going to be glad to know it uses AES 256-bit encryption. You control the key. They don't. It uses SSL even if you don't use AES so that you're always secure during the transmission of your data. You can get to your data not just from the original computer but anywhere you can log into your Carbonite account, including their iPhone app. It's really a great solution. C-A-R-B-O-N-I-T-E. Carbonite.com. Use the offer code security now for two free weeks, two months off if you decide to buy. Carbonite. It's back up done right carbonite all right steve on we go so um i will i will uh i'll lead in by reading the the po of an edited version of the post Good. that i wrote for the news group uh because it says it better than i could paraphrase it and then uh, and we'll talk about it so open versus closed first off there are very important dis differences between open versus closed code and development and open versus closed execution environment platforms. First, looking at the code and development methodology side, I'm not at all clear that open source code is inherently more or less either way secure than closed source code. I don't see anything other than personal policy bias or commercial interest to recommend one over the other from a security standpoint. Based upon all the history we have with the demonstrated security arising from either approach. We have a great pair of samples in Microsoft's Internet Explorer, which is of course closed, and Mozilla's Firefox, which is famously open source. The first one as closed as it could be, and the second wide open to the world. Yet over the past few years, as Firefox has become more prevalent, we don't see significantly fewer problems on that platform we may see more active exploits of ie due to the fact that it still retains a huge majority of web browser market share and the fact that it's also always installed um, in every machine uh, and also and also the fact that it's the more cautious 
and careful security-aware users who have taken the trouble to run Firefox and then add on the additional controls for cookies and scripting management. But overall, looking at the logs of problems being fixed by the now continual flow of Firefox patches, recently more than weekly, we're not seeing anything that says open source means more security. In this weekly podcast, I'm forced to skip over reporting on the mass of security problems continually being discovered in open source software because otherwise we would never have time to talk about anything else and because they generally are spread out among a great many different pieces of software rather than, than focused. And in general, they have a low, low level of saturation per listener. From all of the wealth of evidence we've seen, I think that in either case of open or closed source software and software development, it is the resulting delivered product of either approach, which is pounded and pounded upon and never needlessly altered, except for the purpose of carefully fixing small implementation errors that over time earns the right to be called secure. Our listeners may recall my annoyance at Microsoft's Steve Ballmer declaring at launch that Windows XP was the most secure operating system they had ever created. And my comment back then was, that's not something that anyone can simply pronounce. Security can only be proven over time through being tested. The security of any given implementation of a system can only be earned. Security cannot be declared. It must be proven. And establishing that proof requires time spent in the line of fire. And this is easily demonstrated by the simple fact that it's entirely possible to create vulnerable and exploitable code under either type of source code model, either open or closed. The whole nature of debugging is such that programmers will miss both their own and others' coding errors since they get sucked up into making the same assumptions. And it really doesn't matter how many eyeballs examine the code. Closed source economics at Microsoft can certainly afford to employ just as many eyeballs looking at code as does the volunteer open source model. And anyone who has ever actually been involved in open source projects knows that, in reality, only a very few, and oftentimes just one, developer is actually doing most of the heavy lifting on major parts of a project. So I don't buy for a moment that there's any intrinsic benefit either way in open versus closed source. Either can be buggy as hell or stable and solid as a rock. And it's worth noting that in the case of closed source code, commercial interests work both for and against its security. On the one hand, commercial interests need a reputation for security to help bolster sales. And on the other hand, commercial interests are motivated to keep adding features and revising perfectly good and previously proven code in order to keep their users upgrading um, and revenue flowing. No, mistakes can be made in either development environment, so I see no benefit there either way. But what really has a profound effect on security is policy. And this is where massive differences in security results can be obtained. Years ago, 
How many times did our listeners hear me grumble, not about the fact that a defect was found in Microsoft's Outlook that allowed email to take over the user's machine, but that Microsoft continued year after year their policy of enabling any scripting at all in email. Mistakes are going to happen, but policy is deliberate. And policy is directly reflected in design, which brings us to the question of open versus closed platforms, which is an entirely different animal from open versus closed software development. In comparison to an inherently closed platform, which deliberately imposes restrictions upon what software is allowed to run on it and upon what freedom permitted applications have, any inherently open platform that permissively allows anything to be developed for it and run on it is going to, by design and definition, be significantly less secure. The more freedom applications have within a platform, the less secure it will be since freedom is so easily abused. And the more inter-application interaction the platform allows, the less secure that platform will be, since so many games can be played between applications. And any platform, platform whose design fundamentally adopts an untrusted application model, assuming that applications may misbehave and, by design policy, strictly limits their freedom, as, for example, in the case of the the iPhone OS with its application Sandbox, versus any platform whose design is fundamentally one that encourages a community of assumed mutual trusting applications as Windows, Unix, Mac OS X, and other traditional open platforms do, will be inherently more secure by design. And finally, the more locked down the application screening process is, the more difficult it is for applications to be approved as individual applications are examined by the platform's administrator, scanning for the use of undocumented APIs and any other possible misbehavior, the more inherently secure that locked down platform will be. Thus, taking Apple's just-released iPad As an example, while we cannot possibly say today that the iPad, a three-week-old product, when we're recording this podcast, is secure, because by definition, that can only be proven over time, we can definitely state that the iPad's fundamental design, by virtue of the deliberate and often infuriating and disappointing limitations that were designed into it from the start, make it as a platform not only fundamentally more secure, but also fundamentally more securable. So I think it's, (laughs) well, you make a very interesting um, distinction, which I think is very important, but about security policy versus, it's not really merely open, it's the policies because right. and the reason at first I thought, oh, now this will be interesting to see whether Steve makes a distinction between a closed, between open source software and an open system versus 
uh, a closed system? Because, I mean, it really isn't merely... I mean, some of this software on the iPad is, in fact, open source software, but that's not really what makes it secure. It's that it's a closed system. It's the policies, right? Right. In fact, I spent some time this week delving into the developer documentation for the iPhone OS because I, you know, my my own curiosity was raised by by this question. And what is what is very clear is that that Apple designed a del- a deliberately limited system. They they explained to the developers that that users need to select an app that the OS will run that app that it will have the entire screen while it's running and that when the user presses the home button the application will be told to terminate it will have 5 seconds to do to do so and this is where we're we're talking about existing you know iPhone 3.1.3 the the existing uh level not the forthcoming 4.0 that that begins to allow a little more leniency in termination. Right. But the idea is that when you press the home button, the application is told to You're shut done. down. Yeah. And if it, and it's got five seconds to do so. And if it doesn't, it will be preemptively terminated by the application, by, by the, the underlying kernel. And in fact, the developer docs explain that users would like to have a feeling of continuity from one instance of running to the next right so it's up to the it's up to the individual application to use that shutdown time to quickly save its own state so that when it's run again it has the option and hopefully will take advantage of it to look like it kept running even though it didn't right and so what this so the, the, this this means a, a number of things from a from a, a a design standpoint. It means that the application has the whole phone to itself while it's running, so there there is not any complex multitasking necessarily going on. Although you know the the system itself is multi-threaded and can be doing many things at once, but you know there's 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 one task that has essentially focus and that it has the whole screen, and that and that. It has all of the resources of the machine at that time. What, what's interesting also, Leo, is that when an iPhone application is installed, it's given a unique token, which is the name of the application's file space. So that there, there's, there's even a this, this, the the application essentially can have its own storage area, but it there's absolutely no visibility into the rest of the system. There's, there's no file system that the application can, you know, can rummage around in. It, it has no no visibility at all into the the file system that other applications are sharing. So that so there's there's a you know from the start there was this notion of of separation of processes running on the phone. Now, this makes sense in a something you have in your pocket. You know, none of us would put up with this on the platform that we've got on our desktop. You know, Windows right. and Mac. We're used to huge screens, lots of things going at once, jumping around between things. But, but, so. And it's worth also noting that you know I, I talked about criticize or I did criticize Microsoft for you know having scripting 
leaving scripting there in Outlook for so long. I mean, year after year where this posed horrible problems for security. The, 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 the reason they did is that they just, you know, nothing can make Microsoft take out a feature because they're, you know, even though I, I don't know anybody who ever used scripted email, there were probably some companies in the Fortune 500 that were using it or the fact that the feature was there, Microsoft was t- terminally afraid of breaking something by removing a feature. So the problem is, and we've seen this with the evolution of Windows, how difficult it has been over time for Microsoft to to try to get back security policy that they had originally never considered. You know, things like UAC that appeared in Vista, things like um, DEP, the data execution prevention. I mean, that that stuff... It, you know, sort of creeps in slowly. It's there, but it's turned off. And then it's kind of turned on. Then it's turned on a little more. And then finally it's on by default. I mean, it just, you know, Microsoft is trying to creep forward. Well, so it's a huge advantage for someone like Apple to come along much later in the game, having watched all of this bloody war in in the past and said, okay, we understand what we need to do to create a fundamentally secure platform through policy and developers aren't going to like it. And to some degree, even the users are not going to like it. I mean, you know, I was never able to get my iPod touch on my Wi-Fi here at home because I use one of my own impossible to type in passwords. And so I couldn't, there was no cut and paste as we remember because, you know, that was a form of inter-application mischief that, that might have been possible. And, you know, it was, I mean, Apple's design, design decisions were so rigorous in the beginning that they said, if, if anything, we're going to err in, on the iPhone in the, in, in the favor of being overly restrictive because we could always loosen it later, but we can never tighten it later. And that's, of course, the lesson that Microsoft is still is still trying to learn and, and having to pay for. Yeah. Start tough. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then, you know, as it's proven, as you're able to, I, I have no doubt that there's some serious vetting going on about the data on the um, the clipboard when you cut, copy, and paste among applications on the on the iPhone and the, and the iPad because, you know, again... Apple recognizes that that what they have they have a they've established a strongly sandboxed seriously secure policy and and I've got to say Leo given my choice I would rather go without features and not compromise security than than have the iPad turn into a much more open platform that that starts having real problems because you know that that they this all came up with the Q and A question we answered last week. The guy saying, "Would the iPad make a reasonable dedicated platform for secure banking?" And, and I would say, you know, there's the reasoning for my having said yes yeah. last week. Yeah. I mean, it's not that you couldn't have an exploit on there. It's just that an exploit would be because of the nature of the platform kind of its impact would be dampened. Is and, that it? Well, and it's it's that 
it's that with Windows, it, it's almost impossible not to have exploits. Right. I mean, it's it's completely open. It's complete. It's the wild west. It's you know, you go to a website and something is installing code on your machine that runs. I mean, that can't happen on the iPhone because the iPhone is you know you have to have signed applications that are cryptographically signed before the system will run those things. There's nothing like that on, on right. Windows, and, and you can't impose it now. It's, it's too late. late. Yeah. Exactly. As we talked about last week, Apple kind of, uh, this might have been a stealth, uh, intentional stealth act on Apple's part that uh, they thought, well, if we're going to start from scratch, maybe we start from scratch in, in a different way and forcing signed applications, controlling tightly the application store, controlling how applications are developed. All of these things might annoy developers and, and end users, but it does have an interesting impact. And as I mentioned last week, if, if security becomes a bigger and bigger issue down the road, um, it might be interesting. It might be an interesting advantage to Apple that none, nobody had really thought about. Well, I, I, mean, I wouldn't well, use the iPad as my sole computer. I don't, I don't think, or iPhone. I don't think anybody's suggesting that, but oh, Absolutely not. I'm with you. I mean, it, it it's with me when I'm out reading and and surfing and you know, and I'm wishing for it that it had things that I have on all my other real machines, like you know, a, a really good news group reader that I will will hopefully come along. Right. But but for what it is, and and this is exactly that our our listeners' question last week. You know, I would argue it is the the safest way. To surf the net today, I can't think wow. of a of a safer way to surf the net than on an iPad. Yeah. All right. Well, well, uh, very interesting points, uh, and it's worth also talking about the other sandboxed um, right. platforms. Right. I mean, we do have Droid, for example. Which, which, Would the which, same thing be the same case be there? You think? Well, the problem there is that you know. I mean, and, and again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this, but Apple has a obviously a strong economic reason for also controlling the apps. They want to be in the revenue stream of 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 apps which are non-free, which are being installed on their iPhone OS products, the iPhone and the iPad. Whereas the model that that um, that Android has is, you know, strong from a security standpoint, because again, they had the advantage of coming along later in the game, but anyone who wants to can create apps for it because, you know, their economic model is entirely different from Apple's. So while I would argue that, yes, it's better than the old inherently trusting platforms like windows and and unix and, and and mac os it is because anyone can create an app that won't go through some sort of scrutinizing process i mean i would argue that you're getting something uh, there there there's some value from a security standpoint that you're getting sort of unwittingly from the fact that apple is is so concerned about the apps that run on their platform you know, they do scan them for the use of, of undocumented APIs. They, they, they scan them to the limit of their ability. And I don't, 
I don't, I don't say that this is something you can feasibly do in an automated fashion. You know, obviously they're not doing a source code review or anything. They're, they're just looking for where they can for, for, for behavior that looks suspicious. But it's only after it, it goes through that then that they will sign it to give it the cryptographic credentials that it needs in order to run on people's phones. There's some value there that you're that you're paying something for right. that Apple is getting some money for that is not part of the economic model, you know, the ecosystem in the competing open phone platforms. And so, yes, it's not free, but I think there's some security benefit as well. And I'll bet you that it gets proven over time. Yeah, we shall see. I mean, there's nothing to say that somebody couldn't develop an exploit for it. I mean, there were there are exploits for the iPhone. Not very effective exploits, but they're effective. Well, and they all involve jail, jailbroken iPhones, right? Ah, uh, that's interesting. Yes. I mean, so when, when you do that, all bets are off. You've, you've broken a, a chunk of the security of your system when you jailbreak your phone. So it's, it's, it's hardly surprising that, that very quickly that got taken advantage of. But as long as this, this security is up and intact from the kernel and you haven't done something you know, to, to deliberately weaken the security of your phone, um, it seems very strong. There was a uh, pwned own ha- a contest at uh, Cansec West. Um, s- someone was able to break into a fully patched iPhone and hijack the SMS da- database, including uh, messages that had been deleted. Yeah, there, there, is, there are APIs which allow applications to have access to the context uh, for to the contacts, and there there are the problems also with um, uh, it was I know I know the hack you're talking about. It was a it uses a, a, Safari a vulnerability, I think. Uh, Maybe the, not. It, it was a return. It, it was using existing code, jumping into existing code in order to get the code right. to execute. Um, and we and we we've talked about this kind he of said, approach. They say before. it does. This exploit doesn't get out of the iPhone sandbox. Uh, you're still in the sandbox. Uh, the problem is, of course, that uh, Apple's own applications have more access to the system than third-party applications. So if you can find a flaw in Apple's applications, in this case, in uh, iPhone Safari, you get farther than you would if you if you hacked Leo's application. Right. And and I I guess my my response is that. We know that security is not absolute. It's not a matter of is I'm not and I'm not saying it is impossible to hack the iPhone or iPad. Not at all. Again, that you can only get that we can only prove over time. Right. But it is it is clear that by policy, there's a huge set of policies that are inherently restrictive and inherently good for security. Right. And, and that that matters. And right. so, I mean, if you look at the, I mean, the, the security under Windows is a catastrophe. I mean, it's a disaster. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it, it's horrific. And you, we see nothing like that on the iPhone after its three years of existence and it being very popular and it, you know, you know, 50 million of them are out there and it's a connected communicating device that that is fundamentally an, a fertile medium for for this kind of attack, right. and it's it's quiet by comparison, right. and that's not a mistake. Right. Great, great conversation, Steve.
Fascinating stuff. Is that uh, uh, essay on the uh, website now, or is it going up later? Uh, I, I, had, I just wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be part of the show notes. Uh, uh, um, I, I, I'll, I'll email it to you so you can add it to your show notes. Good. And you'll put it, will you put it on the website? Or? And I will. I'll, I'll, well, it'll I'll be part on, of the transcript. What am I saying? Of course it will. It'll be part of the transcript. And yeah. I'll also make, I'll stick the file on, our, on GRC's uh, show notes so people have that as well. You can get those notes by going to grc.com. There's a whole Security Now page with notes for all of the shows, including 16 kilobit versions uh, for people with less bandwidth. Uh, there's a PDF. Uh, there's a transcript. There's everything you'd want. All available at grc.com. When you're at grc.com, take a look at all the great other stuff that's there. Uh, Steve has put together, of course, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, Spinrite. There's just there's no better way to do it, uh, and you can find out all about there, that there. But also lots of free stuff on his site, including uh, Shields Up, Shoot the Messenger, Unplug and Pray, the Decombobulator, Perfect Passwords, and my my favorite little doohickey, Wizmo. One million downloads on Wismo. That's pretty Yay. good. We're getting there. Yeah. Of course, you had almost three million on Unplug and Pray. <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> wow. All at grc.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. You can watch this show. We do it live every Wednesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. I'm sorry, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. That's 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv. You can watch video on YouTube at youtube.com slash twit in the Security Now channel. You can also download audio as and video uh, from any podcast aggregator, uh, including iTunes, the Zoom Marketplace, uh, on Linux, everywhere that you can get a podcast. You can get the, uh, we have make uh, large and small versions available of the video and a 64 kilobit mono version of the uh, audio. All for your delectation, absolutely free. Because we have support from great sponsors like uh, Citrix, the folks who do Go to Assist, and Carbonite, who do Carbonite's great backup software. We thank them for making this possible. And I thank and, you, Steve. And I do want to solicit feedback on this topic. I'm sure that a lot of listeners have opinions. Uh, GRC.com slash feedback will get you to a web form. Uh, say something about iPad or iPhone security in the subject line. Uh, and uh, next week is our Q&A, and I have a feeling I'll be uh, reading some <laughs> opinions about I bet. This. Yeah. I'd lo I, love I to bet. have it. Either way. We can talk about it. GRC.com slash feedback to leave feedback for our talk back issue uh, next week. Thank you, Steve. See you, Leo. See you next time on Security Now. Security Now.